Okay, so here on the slide, as you can see, we are starting with exegesis of Philippians. Uh, the first thing that I actually want to go over is the structure of the book. Anybody who's read Paul, I'm sure that you see sometimes when he does his arguments, they kind of build. So he'll start with something, and then he builds, and he adds evidence, and he adds examples, and he kind of builds and builds and builds, and then he makes his point, right? This is how Paul normally writes. Well, not in Philippians, of course, because that would be normal, and, and no, no, this is so different. Um, the entire book is kind of structured around this central part in chapter 2 that talks about the Messiah. But as Paul works through the text, he's going to give us little snippets. So like 1 through 11 gives you a little bit of information that kind of relates to the Messiah. And then 12 through 26 gives you something else that's kind of related, but not directly. Okay, so we're actually going to be taking these in different sections, but you don't have to read straight through like you do in some of Paul's other arguments. So for example, when you're reading through Galatians 3, you really need to read straight through because his argument just keeps building and he keeps giving examples. The benefit of this book is we can take it in big chunks and you don't have to remember everything that we did the week before because it's kind of their self, there's like standalone sections, okay? Now, the author, of course, is Paul. The recipients are the churches in Philippi, and we're going to get into who are these people and what are these people in a couple of slides. Um, and then the occasion here, so this is why is Paul writing this letter? What is the point? Um, in this particular one, apparently the churches were experiencing some suffering. They were having some persecution. They were having some internal conflict amongst the leaders of the churches. And so this letter that Paul is writing is really just to encourage the churches in both of these areas while also offering some sound advice for them. So this is in stark contrast to many of his other works, which we'll see again in a couple of slides, where he's not rebuking them. He is encouraging them. And so this letter is very uplifting, which is why our workbook is titled Partners for Christ, because he is coming alongside the churches in Philippi to really encourage them and build them up and help them continue in their ministry. Questions? Okay. I will ask for questions often, probably annoyingly often, but I want everybody to be able to ask questions if you have them. So let's talk about exegesis. What is it? Um, first, it is a method of study. Okay? It is just a way to approach the scriptures. Um, the goal of exegesis is to get back to the author or the text, if we don't know who the author is, the original intent for that audience. So while we absolutely, this text is for us, it wasn't written most of the time to us. For example, the book of Philippians was written to the churches in Philippi. That doesn't mean we can't learn from it. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter for us, but it wasn't written to us. And so there's some things that we are missing because we are not the church in Philippi. Uh, so getting back to what it is that was going on at the time, the situation, the background, the context, those are the things that's going to help us kind of get into the minds of that Philippian church so that we can understand the full message that Paul has for them and then appropriately apply it for our lives. So how do we do this? How in the world do we unpack 2,000 years of history and language and all of this? Well, we look at the language, which I'm going to help walk everybody through. Um, that is what I studied in grad school, so I'm going to help. We're going to break down some of the language. I'm going to explain it. Don't worry, it will not be a grammar lesson. I promise. It's going to be more about vocabulary. What does this word mean? Why did he pick this word? What's the context behind this word? And I'm going to break all of that down for us as they come up. And then um, I have grammar up there because some of the arguments... We have to look at the way that he structures them, but it's, it's not as bad as it sounds, I promise. 
Um, and then looking at the background and the context, and then of course the genre. This is a letter, so this is not like him telling a story, this is a letter, and so there is a recipient, there is a situation, there's a reason, and so those are things we have to take into account when we're making sure that we're interpreting this. If you'll notice here, even though the screen's a little bit, this is exegesis here, so we are here. What we get from exegesis is information. So as we're studying, we're going to just get information about the text, about the author, about whatever is going on. And then we get to interpretation and how we apply it. So we gather information, we gather background, we gather these things, and then we apply it after we know all of that. And then that's where we get to what does the text mean for us. Are there any questions on this slide? I know it's, it's quite a bit in one slide, but are there any questions here about what is exegesis, how do we do it? No? Okay. Y'all are awesome. All right, so now we are going to get into verses 1 to 8. Okay? So the way that I have the PowerPoint set up is I have of each set of verses, and I'll read through them, and then we're going to kind of break them down. But if you have your Bibles and you'd like to open them, if you haven't already, and follow along, this is where we are. I am reading out of the NET, the New English Translation, so it may be a little bit different. Um, but uh, when I was comparing them, they weren't, I didn't think, too different. But this is, tends to be the translation that I use. So verse 1 says, From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. So this is the first, this is like his opening greeting. Okay? Now, from this greeting, we get just some general information. So number one, we know who is sending the letter, Paul and Timothy. All right? We know who the recipient is, the church is in Philippi. Okay? So from this, we have a location. So we can do research and find out what is the background, what is going on. So the churches in Philippi, Philippi is a really interesting city to have a bunch of churches. Okay? And the reason for this, especially the way that Paul greeted them, is that this was a colony originally founded by Roman or by the, uh, the leaders of the Roman army. They settled soldiers here. So these were men who had earned their freedom and earned their citizenship from the Roman Empire. So to address this letter to say to the slaves at this church is really striking because these are people who fought, knew people who died for their freedom so that they could be citizens of the Roman Empire. So this background, this context tells us that the greeting is a striking greeting for that audience because they would have gone, why are you calling me that? I, I worked for my place, I worked for my citizenship, and yet you're calling me a slave? That doesn't make sense. So this is how we get general observations just from that bit, just from that little bit introduction. If you have questions, flag me. I promise I will stop. Now, let's dig into this slaves of Jesus Christ. So I have the verse up here so we can see. So from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus to all of the saints, okay? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So let's look, I talked briefly, but about this, the context. So slavery in ancient Rome is very different than any kind of modern context that we have. It's very different. It was a social institution. Okay, granted, I'm not in any way supporting it. It was not a great social institution, but it was very different than what we have now. Okay, you could have been born into it. You could willingly put yourself in this position by working for a family. You could be captured for military conquest, or you could be sold. There are many different ways that you could end up in this position. And these were integral members of the society. They were shop owners, they ran households, they taught children. They were absolutely vital to the society. So while it was the lower tier of the socioeconomic ladder, they were incredibly vital. 
absolutely vital to their society and to basically the running of their world. Now, there is an Old Testament context here. Oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, people there in um, the, Jewish, the Jewish culture, they were called servants of Yahweh. And so anybody who was a Jew or had that background would have had this competing idea. Well, I'm a Roman, but I know this background that the religion that Christianity came out of, they called them servants. So what exactly do we mean here? So there's a lot going on in just this one concept. The bottom line here, though, as far as what this means, why this is in here, is it's to emphasize the humility that's associated with this position. It's the humility. So Paul and Timothy are placing themselves in a position to be humble. They are dedicated to whatever it is that they're a slave to, and so in this case, slaves of Christ Jesus. They are dependent upon him. A slave in the ancient world would not have had any autonomy. They wouldn't have been able to do their own thing. They would have been totally dependent on their master. And so Paul and Timothy, leaders in the church, are placing themselves here and saying, I am completely dependent on Christ. I am completely dedicated to him. And God is more important than me because of my position. And so that's definitely different since Paul here is an apostle. So you have one of the preeminent leaders in the church saying, no, 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 no. I am not that important. I am a slave to this person. And so it puts into perspective the way that we should feel or the way that we should react to our position in Christ. Because, you know, kind of like I've heard Ryan say often, everybody is important, but everybody is replaceable because we do have important work to do, but it's for Christ, it's not for us. And so it highlights that difference there. Questions? Are we good? Am I talking too fast? I tend to do that. Okay, I just want to make sure. Now, this right here, when I read through this, this was the most striking part. Why in the world did Paul call out the overseers and the deacons? He doesn't do that in any other letter. Now, in the letters to Timothy, he talks about it, he gives the qualifications, but he is straight out calling them here, along with the overseers and the deacons. He is specifically talking to them. Why in the world is he doing that? He doesn't do that in his letter to the Romans. He doesn't do it in Galatians. It is different. So this is one of those exegesis things when you're reading through the text and you see something that's different or that you don't recognize, it's like, why is he doing that? Why did he do that here in this book when he doesn't do it everywhere else? He says grace and peace to you everywhere, which is what we're going to talk about on the next slide. So that's normal, but this is not normal. So we have to kind of break down what this is. So I have up here on the screen a place you do not need to write it all down. I can send this out to you. Um, the definition for overseer, which is this top one here. So it is one who is responsible for the safeguarding or seeing that something is done. It refers to one who has a defined function or an office. But at this point in the history of the church, it probably wasn't a defined office. So it was a person who does the things that would later be associated with the office of overseer. But at the time, it probably wasn't formal. So this is more descriptive of somebody who's doing certain things in the body of Christ, okay? Now, when it comes to deacons, it's kind of the same thing. Again, not a formalized ministry yet. The uh, events here, um, again, probably predate that formalized, that formalized office, but a deacon here would be somebody who serves as an intermediary between people. That was one of the things that they did at the time, at least what the word is in the context. Um, somebody who aids, somebody who gets something done at the direction of somebody else. And so these are the kinds of things that these people 
who Paul is specifically talking to are doing in their church. Okay. Now the foundation for deacons is in Acts six. Um, we have all of we all we all probably have read through that at one point or another. Um, and eventually, both of these would have evolved naturally into official offices where these things that they are doing become full on roles. So now that we have the roles, there are a couple of suggestions as to why Paul is talking specifically to the church plus the overseers and the deacons. So I'm going to read through. There are four options that scholars present for why this is, why he's talking to them. The first one is that there is a problem that's referenced among the leaders. There is um, kind of some disagreement between some of the leaders, and we'll talk about that in chapter four. And so since this letter is so encouraging and uplifting and trying to remind them to be unified, maybe Paul is kind of being like, hey, hey, you, leaders, um, this is for you too. This is not just for everybody else. So that is certainly an option that makes sense. The second option is that they might have been just the ones who received the letter. The problem with that interpretation is that that was probably the case in all of the churches. So again, why isn't Paul saying that in all of the other ones? But that is certainly possible. Maybe he was writing specifically to them and then knowing they would share that information. The third option would be that they would be the ones who would have organized and funded Paul's work and Paul's mission. And so he wanted to, because um, he's going to thank them in a couple of verses, maybe he wanted to give them a little bit more thanks. And so that is ab- absolutely possible. And then the fourth option would be that Paul is supporting their authority by saying, all of these words that I'm giving you, these are going through the overseers and the deacons. And so I am kind of putting his stamp of approval on the people who are going to be presenting this. Any of these are absolutely possible. I do think that the first, based on the context and based on the fact that we're going to get some information about this, um, these disagreements, I think that's probably definitely going on in combination with some of these other ones. But that is absolutely part of the reason the letter was written, is that there was some difficulties and wanted to remind the overseers and the deacons and the leaders in this church that you know, this is all for God, and we need to work out our problems so that we can continue this mission for God. Questions? No? Okay. Okay, so I said we're going to get to grace and peace. Here we are. Grace and peace to you. This is verse 2. From God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So his entire greeting spans about three or four verses, but this one here, this part here is very normal. Grace and peace to you is a standard greeting both in the New Testament letters, but also just throughout the world at that time. It is an interesting combination. It is a traditional greeting in that Greco-Roman world where they would say uh, basically the word greetings, and that has been kind of morphed into the word grace, okay? And then we get to the Jewish greeting, which is peace. That is the way that Jews would have greeted each other, and so Paul takes both sides and smushes them together in his greeting. So he is bringing together these cultures and bringing together these people and saying, you know, I'm talking to Greeks and I'm talking to Jews alike. And here's my standard greeting that I'm going to use so that everybody is included in this. So everybody would have had something that when they're reading this letter, they, they were familiar with. And so it would have been inviting for them. Um, now, the order is interesting. In our translations, and pretty much all of them, it is grace and peace to you because that is the, that is the standard greeting. But when you look at the Greek... It actually literally translates to grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. What this does when we kind of break it down into those words instead of just grace and peace to you is it highlights where the grace is coming from. Grace and peace from God our Father. So grace to you 
and then peace from our Father. Everything comes from God. That grace comes from God, and it highlights the source of that. Grace is everything that comes from God. Peace flows out of God's grace, and it puts these in, in proper order because without grace, we don't have peace. We have to rest in God's grace in order for us to have peace, especially in troubled times, especially in the situation that's probably going on where there's internal strife in the church. You know, resting in that, we can get peace from that grace, knowing that assurance of who God is and what he's doing for us. So this is just one of those little tidbits that when you look in, that it gives a little bit of extra depth, which is where that, that exegesis comes in. Does that make sense? Okay, questions? Am I going too fast? No? Okay, just want to make sure. I want us to have some time to do some of the discussion questions in class. So... The next part here is God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that both are, mis- are mentioned and joined together with the conjunction, the word and, just shows that they are, it's both of them. It's not that the uh, Son and the Father are acting um, separately here because we know that they each have different roles sometimes. This is a unified giving of grace and of peace out of that. So it's just both of them. That's all. And that's the reason I thought it was interesting to include because we now, now that Christ has ascended, they are both working together in that. Okay. Yeah. Is there a, a Greek significance to when Paul says Christ Jesus and then other times Jesus Christ? No. It's just mm-hmm. interchangeable. Yeah, they're interchangeable. No, the and, and sometimes in the Greek it doesn't translate over and the translators will reorganize them to make it more regular. Um, there's there's no no. It just kind of just depends on how they write. So Usually, if there's going to be a significance for something like that, it'll be in a big section where Paul is building his argument, and then there'll be something else attached to that, as opposed to just the name. So, a reason why he chose to address saints as opposed to brothers and sisters? Or? It just, it's just a way to address the churches. So, saints is just a way that he, he qualified them. It's, it's no... Unless you're Unless you're in the Catholic Church, yes. It is, it is just a title that's given for Christians. For us, it would just be like if somebody stood up and said, Christians, as opposed to brothers and sisters. There's no, any, I looked at that, there's really no anything here as far as that. Um, the title of saints became far more, like you said, the Catholic Church became far more of a sticking point when we get there. But we're before that, so there's none of that to kind of muddle the waters. Now, verses 3 through 5, this is where that grammar piece comes in. Okay, so we're going to look a little bit at grammar here. Okay, we have, so it says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul greets them with this joined greeting saying, you know, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And then he says, I thank God every time I remember you. I'm always praying. But we have three different clauses here. Okay, so I'm going to break it down on the next slide. We have three different things that Paul is saying here. So the first thing is, I thank my God every time I remember you. That is a a unit of its own. Then we have a second unit. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you. That's unit number two. And then this third one down here at the bottom, because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, In the Greek, that's a little ambiguous. Like, which phrase does it go with? Now, the translators of the NET, which is why I chose this translation, why I like it, is they they put it in for us. We can tell it goes with the the second based on the way they translated. But in the Greek, it's not quite as clear. But I do want to break down why, because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, goes with 
I always pray for you. I want to break down why those go together, um, since in not every translation it's going to be quite that clear. Okay, so here's, here's my nifty little slide here. So verse 3, we got some Greek on the screen, all right? I thank my God. Why? Why is he thanking God? And, and then when? When is he doing that? Is he just randomly thinking of, thanking him, or is, is it all the time? And so this part right here answers this question, okay? So all or every remembrance or mention of you. So he is thanking God all mentions or remembrances of you. That's when. But this little preposition right here is, is, is the tricky part. It means at or upon or because of. So I thank my God upon every mention of you or every time I remember you. So this is something that when they come up in a conversation or when they come up in his mind, he immediately is thanking God for them because of their participation in the gospel. Okay? Now, the second one here, I always pray with joy. Why? Why is he praying with joy? I, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I pray, I'm not super joyful. I'm, 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 I'm set. I'm stressed. I'm not always joyful when I'm praying, even when I'm praying for other people. I, I'm not always joyful about that. Sometimes it's because there's stress going on. But he is joyful when he prays for them because, this is the same word, this one here, same word, because of your participation in the gospel. So because of the work that they are doing in Philippi, Paul is thanking God every single time that they remember that he remembers them, and he is always praying with joy because of the work that they are doing. Make sense? Cool. What in the world is participation of the gospel? What does that mean? You know, we can kind of assume that it means they're doing the church things, right? They're going and doing the things they're supposed to be doing, but kind of what does that mean? There's a lot of options as to how this has been interpreted. The consensus among most scholars is this first one right here their partnership with Paul himself in spreading the gospel, okay? So they have a personal relationship with Paul. Paul founded this church. He knows them. They have a personal connection with him. They're giving him financial support, and so they are helping him physically continue his ministry. They have sympathy for what he's doing. He's been communicating with them, and they're praying for him, and then they are doing the thing that he asked them to do. They are disciples who are in turn making disciples. They are continuing the work. Paul didn't go and give them the things that they need, and then they just, oh, okay, and that was it. No, they are doing the work that he tasked them to do. And so Paul is rejoicing in this because not only are they helping him in his ministry and his mission, but they're doing it themselves, which is something that isn't highlighted in some of the other letters. We're, we're going through Galatians in another study, and that letter is all about, you know, how did you fall away from the gospel so quickly? How in the world did you do that? I was just there. No, this group, they are doing the thing that, he was, that they were taught to do. They, so this, this church is a great example for churches to follow because they're doing the thing that they were told to do, the thing they were trained to do. Make sense? Okay. Now, this is, this is where I say grammar, it builds. All right? So I thank my God every time I remember you, and then we get here. I always pray with, every, with joy in my every prayer for all of you, because of your participation. So it builds. This is one of those building arguments that I mentioned that Paul usually does. Now, granted, usually in his letters, they're like 19 verses long, but this is one of those shorter building. These build, they support each other, and when you understand them in order, it clarifies exactly what it is that's going on in the passage. Good? Okay, we're going to pause. 
okay? And we're going to talk about interpretation now. So why does this matter? I mean, it's cool, right? I mean, I think it's cool. There's grammar, there's vocab. I think it's awesome. This is my jam. But I understand that that's not for everybody. I get that. So why does this matter? Why are we here? What in the world? So question number eight from your books, you don't need to open them unless you just want to. Question number eight says, in what are Paul and the Philippians partners? Okay, what do they share in common? You can also read these verses in Philippians, but I think we've gone over it quite a bit. We've kind of broken down the participation of the gospel, so you may not need to. And then let's take it to application. What are some specific things that you and your group any, at church in general are partners of specifically because you are Christians? Because this, this group that Paul is writing to, this is not just Christians and non-Christians. This is not neighbors. It's not neighborhoods. These are This is a church. Who is doing things together and working together.